welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discussed through the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and when I think of World War II, you're gonna really appreciate this, Missy. I think of the Avengers movies. Of course you do. (laughs) A lot of the early story arc had to do with Hydra, which is a fictional but Nazi-adjacent organization, and a lot of storylines have backstory in the World War II. I love that you get all of your history from movies. Well, it's a good source of history. If we were talking about World War One, I, I would tell you that my source was Downton Abbey. So, oh All right, well, I'm Misty, and I think my favorite Americana from World War II is all of our propaganda posters. They're amazing. You told me that the intro needed to be pop culture related, and you're going to do propaganda poster. They were up everywhere. I'm going to call that part of pop oh culture. So obviously today we're talking about World War II. Yay! Misty's bribed me or something. I don't know what's happened. World War II is a big deal. I was kidnapped and brought here against my will. (laughs) So World War II is a really, really, really important turning point for a lot of things, but especially for American women. And so that's why I wanted to talk about it. Fine. And I'm just going to talk, 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 talk. We know. So one thing that we've talked about before is that American women go to work during World War II. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is not that those who weren't wealthy were going to work because they have always worked. Yes. It's that we have white middle class women who now have to go to work. Okay. For their patriotic duty. Okay. Whereas before, they were told that good American women stayed home with their kids. Yeah. And were mothers. So we have this huge cultural shift. Do you know if most women were happy to do it? We don't have data like that because no one cared. Right. Because it's women's feelings. So who well, cares? That and there was a larger social good. We have to defeat the Nazis and the Japanese. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if you're happy at the factory. You just have to go. Well, I just mean, I mean, I think a lot of people, based on, again, my knowledge from movies, were happy to help and serve their country. I'm just wondering if women were happy to, like, have jobs. And have income and have some agency in their lives. Well, we know that at least some were because when the war ended, they didn't all go back home. Oh, yeah. They stayed at work. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whether by necessity for some of them, if they had lost a husband or, you know, whatever. But some of them wanted to work. Additionally, we also have women who are going to serve in not the military, but military adjacent Mm -hmm. organizations. About 350,000 women who did that. So kind of invited women into the armed forces to some extent. And so I want to do an activity with you that I do with my classes. And I put a picture in our notes again because I can't help it. It's a podcast. I know that. It's an audio program. I understand. Oh, it's Rosie the Riveter. Okay. It is Rosie so the Riveter. So everybody knows. Yes. But okay, so I want you to do something. Okay. Take your hand uh-huh. and cover her body and just look at her face. Okay. Cover her body and just look at her face. Got it. So what I want you to see here is that she has very defined, very delicate features. She's wearing makeup. She looks very feminine, right? Yes. Now, move your hand up and cover her face and just look at her body. Okay. That's not a woman's body. I mean, it's to me, it's it's any. It's, it's undefined. It's androgynous. How do you say that word? Undefined. Yeah. Yeah. So, but if you look at the arms. Okay. She's very broad. Yeah. Obviously, she's very strong. Okay. This is very subtle, but what it's trying to tell American women is that you can go into the factories, you can work, 
and you can still be feminine. Because that was the concern from a lot of women, that if they took these male jobs, they would lose their femininity. Was that women's concerns or was that men's concerns? That I was they- probably both. That they wouldn't be women anymore, right? Because the the whole the term gender confusion, yes, <laughs> came from World War II. Well, we used it a little bit before that too. But uh, the other thing I wanted to point out to you is her hair. Yes, when women first went into the factories, we had so many accidents, really, because of their hair. Interesting, because the style at the time was to wear it long, yeah, and kind of curled but loose, and it kept getting caught in the machines. So there were like Hollywood stars that started putting their hair up in those braids. Yeah. Or up in like a bob kind of thing so that American women would copy them and we would have less accidents <laughs> in the factories. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Yeah. So these actresses thought it was their like patriotic duty. Well, uh, to style their hair okay. in a different way. So they got away with styling their hair differently and yes. they got to call that their patriotic <laughs> duty. Okay. Sure. So when we're talking about uh, the ladies who would have been riveters which i guess you know rosie the riveter is a fictional character right yes okay i wasn't sure if you knew that uh she was painted by norman rockwell and there was another i didn't know that makes sense looks like it and there's another rosie that was painted by howard miller about the same time and the reason she has the name rosie is because there's a song in 1943 that's very popular called rosie the riveter so all those things kind of hit pop culture at the same time and they melded into this fictional character okay so uh about Three. And that's a propaganda poster, right? Absolutely, okay. that's propaganda. Yeah, I mean, look at her. What is what colors is she wearing? Superman colors, <laughs> red, white, and blue. Yeah, she's a good American, right? So, we had about three hundred thousand women who go work in the aircraft industry, so building the planes, uh, working in the factories, uh, building bombs, loading bombs, those kind of things. I shouldn't say loading them, packing them mm-hmm. to be loaded, but they were paid about half of what men were paid. Of course they were. So part of the argument there was they're necessary for this war effort. Yeah. But it's not a real job, right? Yeah. I mean, if we weren't at war, we wouldn't need them. And they're serving out of patriotic duty, not because they want money. Yeah, I mean, I don't, this goes back to the, the rationale that people had, which was men are supporting a family and women are doing it for a thrill. So men deserve to be paid more. So I want you to scroll down in your notes just a little bit. Oh, my God. I put All another these pictures. I did put another picture in. Okay. This is the Canadian equivalent to Rosie the Riveter. I like her a lot better. Uh, this is Ronnie the Gun Girl. So this, she's named, uh, sorry, Veronica Foster is her real name. And she was working in a factory making guns. And there's this picture of her. Having just finished making a gun. Yeah. And she's smoking and holding the gun up, which I don't know about. That might be unsafe. Probably should not have done that. Well, unless it's loaded, it's probably fine. There's no gunpowder. But still. And so uh, this is uh, Canada's answer to getting women into the factories. They tried to make it look cool. Well, I mean, she does look cool. She looks like she's like from a punk rock band. It's funny you say that. After the war, she joined a band. It was a swing band, what can but I still. Say? I know things. Yeah, I mean, she's got her hair up like Rosie, but yeah, she's smoking and holding a gun. So she does look tougher. Yeah. And I think it's more compelling to me that it's a photograph as opposed to, right. to a Norman Rockwell painting. Because it's an actual person. Right. And I feel like Norman Rockwell did not really have a good sense of the actual America. Reality. Yeah. 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 So outside of working... Women are also going to participate in a lot of other ways for this war. 
And it really transforms what we call the home front in a lot of ways. So one of the things that women are going to do is plant victory gardens. So I'm assuming you're familiar with a victory garden? No. Really? No. Keep looking at me like that. It makes I me really feel really th- smart. I thought that everyone knew that. This is why I have to ask you because as historians, duh, we know what a victory garden is. But you don't have to look at me like I'm dumb. Okay. So we are essentially the breadbasket of the world. It is our job to feed not only our soldiers, mm-hmm. but our allies and all of our prisoners of war. So every commercial farmer essentially is going to be supporting the war effort, which means we as people in the home front civilians should try to help ourselves as much as possible. So women planted victory gardens or community gardens. So the more food you grow yourself is the, the less, less you take from farmers, which means the more can go to soldiers. Exactly. Was the thinking. Did yeah. it really work that way? Yeah. Okay. So in some places, like a very urban places, you would have a community garden. Maybe where we had a building and they tore the lot down mm-hmm. and just planted there. And we would all like work for the garden and then take what you needed. But in neighborhoods, a lot of times what you have is I'll grow cucumbers, you grow tomatoes, and then we'll swap with each other. Who's growing the lettuce? We're going to need <laughs> for making a salad. Uh, Susie down the street okay. taking care of that. All right. But this was a duty that American women were told. If you do this, you're actively contributing to our war effort. Okay. Uh, We go so far as eventually we're going to call all the women at home soldiers without guns. Wow. So what you're doing is absolutely vital to our war effort. But that was just didn't give you a gun. But that was propaganda too, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. So it was like nobody was taking like I was being sworn in as a soldier without a gun. But it was inflating their sense of purpose to get them to do it. Exactly. Okay. Well, and to continually sacrifice. Along with victory gardens, we're going to tell you that you need a ration. That I remember. So rationing is not optional. It's going to be based on the U.S. Census. Wherever you live is going to be given so many ration books. And the books are based on how many people are in your household. So if I have two and you have seven, Mm -hmm. you're going to get more rationing coupons than I'm going to get. Mm Mm-hmm. And then when you go to the store to say buy milk, you would have to pay for it, obviously, but also give them the rationing coupon. So there's another whole set of propaganda around convincing women not to engage in the black market. Was there a black market of rationing coupons? Kind of. Like, it's my kid's birthday and I want to make them a cake, but I don't have any more coupons for sugar. So I could go to your house and say, hey, can I buy your coupon from you to go buy some more sugar? And I mean, technically, that's a black market. Yeah. Because you were not supposed to be giving those away to anybody else. Huh. And it's fairly profitable. Yeah. At some point in the war. Well, yeah. Women were asked, and not just women, but mostly women on the home front were asked to uh, ration gasoline, any kind of fuel, meat, fruit, vegetables, dairy, so cheese, butter, milk, sugar, uh, but also silk and nylon. Why? One thing is Parachutes? Well, we're trying to make more things like that. Okay. But the other thing is, where do we get silk and nylon from? I don't know. Well- the Asian countries okay. that we had been importing it from, and those have been taken over by Japan. Oh. So if we buy that stuff, we're essentially supporting the enemy. Japan took over a bunch of countries? Oh, my God, yes. I didn't know that either. You're messing with me at this point. Nope. Oh, my God. I'm going to need you to take my history class. So I, I mean, to- I'm sure I learned it at one point, but when I think of World War II, I know Japan was one of the people we fought against, obviously, Pearl Harbor. I didn't know they were taking over countries. Yes. So women were told they had to ration silk and nylon, which means pantyhose. Pantyhose. Yeah. And that was just hard for American women. 
Because you had been told your whole life, if you leave your home without your pantyhose on, you're basically walking around naked. Yeah. Nobody needs to be seeing your bare skin. Today, pantyhose seems so strange. <laughs> I know. It's so old-fashioned. I mean, it just nobody wears them. It's fine if you do, but I just never see them. I don't even think about them. So now it just seems strange that they were so integral. In my mind, it would have been like, yes, now we don't have to wear pantyhose anymore. But I guess if you grow up in the culture where they're necessary. So women were sold these at-home kits. And this is essentially like um, fake tanning. So you would paint on. You're kidding. No, you would paint on nylons. And then you could have a friend draw like the tops for you. Some of these kits even showed you how to draw so it looked like you had a snag in them. So you're just painting your legs, but it looks like you're wearing pantyhose. Wow. And this was a salon service, too. So women could go to a salon and get it painted on their legs like they're wearing pantyhose. How long did it last? Just until the war is done. I mean, like, how, if, you get it, if you get it done one time, how long did it last? Oh, a few days. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? They painted on their pantyhose. Yeah, because they want to be proper American women. Wow. Why didn't they just wear pants? Oh, you can't do that in public, Allegra. You could wear pants by World War II. I mean, yeah, if you were going to the factory, but not if you're, like, going about your daily life. Really? It was not really socially acceptable yet. Oh. I thought, like, you could start wearing pants in the 20s. I mean, you could, but look at all the pictures of people out in public. Grocery shopping. Yeah. People aren't walking around wearing pants. I guess even in the 70s, people were mostly still wearing dresses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, wearing pants is a political statement. Even Not today. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, even now, because I'm wearing pants. <laughs> All right. So the group I really want to talk to you about is the American Woman's Voluntary Services. Everything you tell me about has such a weird name. I know. Can't we come up with better acronyms? You know, in historical times, they weren't worried about being snappy. Well, I'm very worried about <laughs> it. I needed to have a jazzier name. Okay. American Women's Voluntary Services. <sighs> okay. This is formed by Alice Throckmorton McLean, mm-hmm. and she eventually becomes a social service organizer. She had traveled pretty extensively all over Europe. She spoke a few languages. All right, so she's kind of just like this wealthy socialite divorcee. Okay. Traveling all around Europe, and she happens to be in England, mm-hmm. and she observes a volunteer services group of English women who are preparing the home front for war. It's 1938, mm-hmm. so we can all kind of see war coming But England, of course, is much closer to the war than we were. Geographically. Geographically. Yeah. So uh, they were much more prepared than we were. So she begins to notice that other European nations are doing this as well. And so in 1939, she returns to the United States and decides that she needs to create this sort of volunteer organization of women in the United States. So this was before America started participating. This is while most Americans were dead set on isolationism. Okay. Are you okay with that term? Yes. Perfect. I mean, it's self-explanatory. I was hoping so, but I've been surprised. I understand words, Misty. (laughs) I just don't know about all historical events. So 1939, America and Americans are pretty set on not participating in the war. Right, because we remember World War I. Oh, sure. And with World War I, we felt it wasn't really our fight, but we got sucked into it. Yeah. So if Europe's burning, let them burn. Okay. Not our problem. Sure. So, I mean, sure, I understand. Not sure I agree with the sentiment. <laughs> I just wanted to clarify that. So, she comes home and she wants to 
create this volunteer group of women who can essentially prepare the United States in case we go to war. Prepare us how? So in 1940, she creates the first chapter of the AWVS, and her goal for this organization was- AWVS, come on. I'm sorry. What did these letters stand for? Uh, The American Women's Voluntary Services. Continue. So anyway, her goal was to prepare American cities in the case of bombing. Okay. So she believes that we're going to get sucked into this war. To the point that it's on our... Yes. Okay. Which didn't actually happen, with the exception of Pearl Harbor. Right. Okay. But it did happen, and so she's right. Yeah. She just thought it was going to come from the other side. Right. She thought it was going to be the Germans. So she is going to headquarters... Her organization in New York City, Mm -hmm. which a lot of these types of organizations were built out in New York early on. It's got a lot of people, got a lot of money. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, socialites looking to donate to things. Sure. And so by the time we get to Pearl Harbor, she already has 18,000 members in her group. Wow. And they have trained. And they're all women. And they're all women. Wow. Why are they all women? Well, because if we go to war, the men are going to go. They'll still be here. Right. I see. Okay. So we can't have a bunch of helpless women here. With nobody to protect them. So we're really preparing the women to protect, protect the, home front. the home front when the men go off to war. Right. Fascinating. In America, young girls aged 14 to 18 have been getting into uniform, mobilizing for emergency service. Service like first aid, which they learn from senior members of the show they have joined, the AWVS or American Women's Voluntary Services. First aid and the first lesson in Morse are part of the useful instruction which young Miss America is getting. Just part of America's total contribution towards the total victory the Allies mean to win. So these Why women... doesn't everybody know about this? I don't know. Because their co-host keeps interrupting yes. them when they try to talk about <laughs> it. So she's got women who are trained to drive ambulances. Teach other people about evacuation procedures, how to set up and operate a mobile kitchen. So, like, if your building is bombed, Mm -hmm. how do we feed people? Mm -hmm. Uh, First aid, basic first aid, and then other various types of emergency services. So, I mean, we're not exactly firefighters, but, like, a basic skill of how to put out a small fire. Okay. Yeah. So, when we enter the war, she now has many, many more people interested in volunteering, right? Of course. Because now... The men are really leaving. We're really involved. Exactly. And we've been talking to women about doing their patriotic duty. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I can go work in a factory. Maybe I can victory garden. But this feels much more active. Yes. Yeah. In a much more real way. Yeah. Much more direct correlation to actual what's happening in the war. Exactly. So she's going to say what sort of skills are needed that there's a deficit of in the U.S. military and maybe women can try to fill some of those. Yeah. So we're going to train some women to be mechanics. Cool. uh, To work on cryptography, to operate switchboards, and then basically any other thing that she could find to fill up a Mm -hmm. spot on a domestic base. Because the more women we have doing these jobs means the more men Mm -hmm. we can send to go fight. Uh, By the end of the war, she's going to have 350 branches all across the United States. And what's really, really cool about this to me is that a lot of these efforts early on were segregated, and her organization is not. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So she made it a point that whoever joined her organization 
really should look like the community that they're going to serve, which is a fairly modern idea. That is a very, yeah. So she had um, Hispanic groups. She had African-American groups. You don't see that in the 1940s. Right. That's really, really early for that. That's fascinating. Okay. So in the middle of the war, the AWVS is going to shift their focus just a little bit. So we're still a volunteer organization and we're still preparing for the war. But now the war is here, right? Mm -hmm. So the needs are slightly different. So one thing that they did was they organized childcare so that other women could go in the factories. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So they're watching Rosie's kids. Rosie can go be a riveter. Uh, When servicemen came home, they set up a, I don't know if clinic is exactly the right word, school maybe. Okay. In San Francisco. And they taught Braille to servicemen that had been blinded. Oh, so that they would still be able to read and communicate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing I think that was really cool that they did, they made it a point to train women to be photographers. And they would take pictures of servicemen's kids, and they would mail the pictures to the men that were fighting. Oh, wow. So a lot of things you don't even think about but would be profoundly beneficial. Well, and like you think about our army today, you don't get deployed for four years at a time. Sure. That doesn't happen. Right. But in World War II, it could very well have happened. Really? Well, you're gone. You don't get yeah. to come home. Yeah. Man. So That's they're awful. really missing their kids' yeah. lives. Yeah. So this helped them stay in touch with families. Four years? Yeah. I mean, not everyone, but it could yeah. happen. Yeah. And then, of course, if, you know, people became POWs for sure. They're not going to get sent back home. So I just think it's a really important organization that we should know about and celebrate. And it's all women. And nobody told them to do it. They just chose to do it. Uh, The other thing they're going to do is they're going to sell war bonds. Hmm. So back in the day when we actually used to pay our bills, the two ways you pay for a war is either you raise taxes, not popular, or you sell war bonds. And her group sold a billion dollars worth of war bonds. Really? Yes. I mean, I assume that was a lot of money. Yeah, that's a lot. 1940s money? That's like... That's a lot. Real money. Okay. (laughs) I don't know. So... For all I know, one plane costs a billion (laughs) dollars. I don't know. I think in our world, we would really admire what these women were doing. Yeah. And everything that they helped the country to do. Yeah. But at the time... Oh, God. There was some criticism. So you're telling me that we have volunteer women... Yes. ...working together... To mm-hmm. do first aid, to put out fires, to respond to emergencies, to prepare for the possibility of war, to... To eventually uh, mend clothes for servicemen. Okay. And taught women how to mend their own clothes so they didn't have to buy new clothes and that way more can go to the war effort. And they raised a billion dollars. Yep. And they did all of this voluntarily. Yes. And you're telling me somebody had Complained? A- A problem with that. Yes. So the founding members were all fairly wealthy. Sure. And a lot of them would probably have been classified as socialites. Okay. So when it was first formed, and especially before we're actually in war, the press referred to this as a frivolous club. The press basically said this is no different than a gardening club. Because, you know, gardening club, preparing for bombing... Same thing. I mean, do you think they were trying to minimalize what they were doing because at that time they were still taking an isolationist perspective? And so they were saying like, oh, this is really silly because we'll never need any of this? Well, I think they were saying that these women were hysterical. Oh. Oh, these women. That old chestnut. Yeah. They're anxious. They're just worried. 
They have thoughts in their heads. If they just went to gardening club. Yeah. Okay. We wouldn't have to worry about this. Sure. Uh, Time Magazine referred to the AWVS as that volunteer group that has made the most noise. What does that even mean? That they were very vocal. That they spoke out. That they persuaded other women that, hey, this is coming whether you like it or not. These loud women. Exactly. These loud women. So this group ends up all over the United States. And they do have integrated units in Texas, in New Orleans, Atlanta, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And when you say integrated, you mean racially integrated? I mean racially integrated. Wow. Um, They even had a few Chinese units, Chinese American units, which again, for the 1940s, incredibly early for that. Uh, The other group that really attacked the AWVS would be the KKK. So here's how you know you're doing something right. (laughs) The KKK is criticizing you. Right. Then you know Mm -hmm. you're doing the right good thing. Exactly. Uh, So by the end of the war, they do disband. Because, I mean, the whole purpose was to prepare for a war that has now concluded. Okay. And the idea was kind of for this bright, shining moment in the 1940s, like, we're the superpower. We're never going to go to war again. Right. And people were relatively confident that that was the war to end all wars. That was World War I. Oh, never mind then. But I, was, knew, uh, I knew that was a yes. phrase. But it is kind of the same idea because we were a superpower, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this moment where we're like, we're the superpower. We defeated all of the bad guys. And we're never going to go to war again. And we believed even then that we were the most powerful nation in the world. Well, this is really the beginning of us believing that because we were the only one left standing. We were the only major nation in the world that didn't have infrastructure damage, that still had fresh troops, that had a large number of military supplies that we could still use. Yeah. I mean, Europe has been bombed. Japan has been atomic bombed. Yeah. Like, things are bad everywhere except the United States. Yeah. I mean... (sighs) Plus, we dropped some atomic bombs. Yeah, That that had to be good for the ego of the country. (laughs) So immediately we do go into the Cold War. So that moment of like, we're never going to go to war again was very brief. Mm -hmm. But they had already disbanded by the time we're really, really into the Cold War. This is fascinating. So tell me why you don't think more people know about it. Because it seems like there were a lot of people participating with the AWVS. And yeah, by the end of the war, she had 325,000 members. Okay. And... They raised over a billion dollars in war bonds, and they were all across the country. They were one of the early groups to integrate. I mean, why is it that people don't know about this? I think it's because World War II in general is so dramatic. Yeah. That the focus is on, you know, beating the Nazis or the atomic bombs or the war in the Pacific. And we kind of gloss over the home front. But do you think we're glossing over the home front because that's where all the ladies were? Maybe to some extent. Okay. But this is just such a different kind of war. I mean, you end up with the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. You have a whole word of genocide that really becomes widespread after World War II. Right. I think An actual axis of evil. Yes. I think there's so much that's going on in this war that, like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Mm -hmm. Things are going well on the home front. We don't have to worry about that too much. And then also, keep in mind, historians in the 1940s and 50s generally are men so when they're writing the stories of war early on they're writing what happened to these women did they i mean do you think some of them went into the fields they trained in when they were in the volunteer service or there's not really any way to know 
We would have to go and see if there's any roll sheets that are still available. So I think for most of them, Mm -hmm. they probably moved on with their lives and went into either more traditional feminine vocations or just became homemakers. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what they always wanted to do. I mean, they joined this because we were at war, Mm -hmm. not because they had a desire for war to happen. And would you, I mean, my assumption here is that most of the women who participated were at least middle class Right. Or or wealthier because they had the opportunity to volunteer as opposed to work. I think that is especially true early on. Okay. By the time we're actually in the war, I think the fear, because we were attacked. We were attacked on American soil. Yeah. So I think after 1941, it's probably more, so I think after we're attacked at Pearl Harbor, it just becomes more personal. Okay. So then it's not just the wealthy. Then it's going to be. Across the board. And the fact that it's racially diverse tells us yeah. that it's socioeconomically diverse. Okay, yeah. Because the wealthy classes in America in 1940 were not that diverse. Okay. Did you read a book about this or something? Uh, I did, and I wanted to recommend it. Let me guess. It's a nonfiction book. Well, of course it's a nonfiction book. What else would it be? <laughs> so, in this actually book has a much uh, broader overview of the home front, and not just this group, but a lot of the groups in America. It's called Our Mother's War. American Women at Home and at the Home Front During World War II by Emily Yellen. Highly recommend. Really good. I'll be honest. It doesn't sound like a book I want to read. You want to tell me about some books that you want to read? I mean, I don't understand why you have such a bias against narrative storytelling. I don't either. But you admit that but you I do. do. But you admit I do. that you do. Okay, so I'll start by telling you there are two nonfiction books that I have read about women during World War II, both of which I would recommend. One is Code Girls okay, by Liza Mundy. And what's cool about Code Girls is it's a very interesting nonfiction book that is got some narrative storytelling about women who worked as cryptographers um, during the war. But there's also a young adult version. So oh, wait. If, it's the same book? Yes. But there's an adult version and a young adult version? Right. That's so, interesting. So if I wanted to read it and my 13-year-old wanted to read it, there's a young adult version. And it's not that anything in the adult version is inappropriate. It just maybe is a little bit shorter and maybe a little bit not simpler, but more appropriate for that reading level in that audience. Same author? Same author. So she wrote a version of the book and then a young adult version of Code Girls. Author Liza Mundy brought the female codebreaker story to the forefront after her research into newly declassified documents at the National Archives. The female codebreakers were certainly one of the reasons that we won the war. Of many successes, they cracked a crucial Japanese code, which gave the U.S. an acute advantage in the Battle of Midway. So, did we talk about a codebreaker before? We did talk about a codebreaker, Elizabeth Friedman. Yes. We talked about Elizabeth Friedman before. And Code Girls is wider scope of a book. So, it's based on archival research and Lots and lots of interviews with those women who are still alive when the book was being written. So those women would be in their 90s when they're being interviewed. The author kind of puts it together in a narrative. 
And it spans, I think, three or four years, like 1942 to 1945, somewhere in there. And so it's really about how these women were recruited from, some of them came from like elite women's colleges, some of them came from small towns, but we're talking about 10,000 women who worked as code breakers for the Army and the Navy. So a lot of women. Yeah, I don't know if I realized it was that high. And Elizabeth Friedman, who we talked about, was like one of the very first code breakers. and one of the famous ones. Yeah. But there were 10,000 by the end of World War II, uh, 10,000 women working as code breakers. And so a lot of them had boyfriends, brothers, husbands, sometimes even dads serving overseas in the war. And so they went, they all were all working in Washington, D.C. They were all especially trained, but also just very good at what they were doing. So they were recruited because of their skills. And they were doing top secret work. So they were doing math, linguistics, they were running those big, giant IBM computers. If you've ever seen one, you probably saw it in the movie Hidden Figures, one of those big giant computers. I don't know why I'm gesturing to you the size of a normal computer, but it's like the room-sized computer. Yeah. Uh, Reading, like spending their whole day reading encrypted messages, and they were working in kind of slap-together code-breaking rooms, because it's not like we had code-breaking buildings pre-existing, ready to fill up. So they were working in not great conditions, And they were very crowded and they were learning as they went in a lot of cases because you don't just know how to work one of these computers if you're from a small town. Well, and they had just been invented. Yeah. So what they did was crack Japanese code and they gave us a a demonstrable advantage in the war with their pencils and their cards and their punch cards. So it's a really cool story, and some of them, some of these women stand out in the narrative, certainly because she's trying to draw out individual right. stories. But to know that there were 10,000 of them. Yeah, that changes the perspective. Absolutely. Because even when I read that book about Elizabeth Friedman, I thought maybe there were 20 or 30, maybe 100. I thought a few hundred. Yeah. yeah. The other thing they did that was really cool is they created and encoded fake messages. Oh, to throw the Japanese off? To throw the Germans off. Oh, the Germans. Okay. And so she writes about in the book is that the codes that they came up with and the fake messages they came up with led to Germany being unprepared or less prepared for the Normandy invasion. That's absolutely true. So um, they saved a lot of people's lives by coming up with fake code and breaking lots of code. So it's a very cool story. I don't want to give away all of the good juicy details. I think I gave a few away, but uh, it's you should read it. It's nonfiction, Misty. Okay, so I might read that. The other book is Unbroken. Do you know that book? Yes, I do. Laura Hillenbrand wrote Unbroken, the nonfiction book right. about World War II. And Angelina Jolie directed the movie version in 2014. The yes. narrative is about men, but the book is by a woman and the movie is directed by a woman. And it is about uh, and it takes place during World War II. Yes. So typically we recommend books focused on women. But in this case, it's a book by a woman, movie by a woman. So those are the two nonfiction. So it's about an Olympic athlete who becomes an airman during World War II, and then I'm not going to give away anything else, but if you know, if you've seen the previews for the movie, you probably have greater context for that. Mm -hmm. Um, The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna, that's a recent book. 
2015. It's historical fiction, and it's about two sisters in France during World War II and how they kind of survived the German occupation of France. So it's a historical fiction. So the backdrop is real, historical based. Um, That's a great book. It It got a lot of attention and awards when it came out. And the other book I want to tell you about is actually one of my all-time favorite books. Really? Yes. Okay. Why are you making that face? I, I'm surprised that a historical fiction book is one of your all-time favorites. I thought you were in like to... What did you think I was into? Please tell us. <laughs> so the book is Manhattan Beach. The author's Jennifer Egan. Jennifer Egan got a lot of attention, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago when she wrote a book called A Visit from the Goon Squad. Yes. Okay, that's how I know her name. Manhattan Beach, I think, came out two years ago, maybe three. You can check that while I'm talking. But it takes place during World War II in New York City. It's about a single woman living in New York City. There are multiple narratives and lots of things happening. But she is working in the Navy Yard as a woman in a factory. And so there's a lot of things that the narrative is about. But then she becomes a Navy diver. Oh, which okay. didn't really happen. We didn't have female divers until after World War II. Yeah, but in the book, so she's this is this is a fictional part. Um, she becomes a Navy diver, and so it's a very interesting, compelling story. And I mean, that's when they were diving with like the weighted suits and the big copper helmets yeah, mm-hmm. that got screwed into the suits, and it took them like an hour just to put the suit on. And um, she trained, I mean, she obviously was the only female in her training unit and the only female who was diving, but they had to dive when the ships came into the Navy Yard, they had to dive underwater to like clean the ships, repair the ships, remove things from them. You know, she was participating in the war effort from the home front, but it's a very interesting story. And, you know, there are things in her personal life as well. So that it's one of my favorite books of all time. Why is it one of your favorite of all time? Because I like it because it's good. <laughs> is there anything like specifically you like about it or uh, just like the whole thing? Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I promise I'm an English professor. I know how to talk about books. Uh, I just, it's, it starts when she's a, when she's younger, when she's an adolescent. And so it kind of traces her development into a person. And I like the idea of a person, even though she's a single woman, even though she's living in this big city, taking on challenges that she doesn't have to. And some of her reasoning for doing it is patriotic, and a lot of it is personal, like, I want to do something that, that that is that challenging. Interesting. So it's a very good book. I you recommend? Yeah. I is think- it like a summer beach read or no? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the word beach is in the title. So here's what I'm so hesitating. Therefore, it must be. It's not, I mean, it's not like the beachiest read. Like, it's not like a romance story with very basic, simple plot. It is a little more intricate. There are multiple storylines happening but it's not like super cerebral pay attention to every line it's not like you know a russian novel or anything so it's an in-between it'd, okay. be, a, it'd be a beach read for somebody who reads a lot who's into literary fiction sure okay that sounds like a really snobby answer but that's my answer i would read it on a beach but awesome so i have a question for you okay why do you think as an average person and not a historian yeah why do you think that we don't know as much about the women's experience of this war? 
Because I feel like we've studied so much about World War II, right? I mean, you have. But it's like on the History Channel all the time. There are so many documentaries about World War II. Everybody knows something about World War II. Yeah. Why don't you think we know these stories? (sighs) I don't know. Because, I mean... Is it that they're less interesting? Well, they're definitely not less interesting. Uh, They definitely didn't have less of an impact. Exactly. Um, And they definitely didn't contribute less. I don't know. I mean, my guess would be the same reason we don't know about lots of things that involve women. It's women aren't in control of the narrative. Or historically haven't been. That's probably true. That's my only guess. Because, like, I mean, if we're all at this point now interested enough to read 500 page long books about code girls, then surely the narrative is interesting. But how hard is it to do the research because these aren't readily available and, and did anybody think it was important enough to keep the documents? Exactly. That's a good point. I mean, a a lot of what they were doing and a lot of what Elizabeth Friedman did was, at the time, classified. Exactly. So they couldn't talk about it. But certainly what women were doing in the factories and in the volunteer service, that wasn't classified. So I don't know why we wouldn't know more about it except to say it seems like it's less impactful because it doesn't involve weapons. And it happened here as opposed to there. There. That's my only guess. But like you said, World War II is just dense with stories. That's true. So the longer we go, the more we're going to unravel in terms of the stories that have been buried by the flashier, you know, Normandy invasions. (laughs) I think Eisenhower is rolling over in his grave that you just described that as flashy. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. You're the historian. Yeah, but the thing is, like, I lose perspective on what other people know obviously as we have noticed yeah sorry but the other thing i the other question is and we've talked about this before why do we only have one female identifier for world war ii we have rosie the riveter that's it right when we think about women in world war ii that's the first one right i mean it couldn't even be a family feud question because that would be everyone's answer so why do we do that why do we have like a token woman instead of all of these diverse, interesting stories about gardening and code breaking and even mending clothes or taking pictures of children or teaching people who are blinded to read? I mean, all of those things are selling war bonds. Yeah, right? that was a huge part of it. That's all important. So I don't know. So like, what's next in your lady life? Well, uh, we're getting our new house inspected this week. Yay. Yeah, pretty exciting. I've never done it before, so I hear this is one of the final steps. Yeah, and stuff's going to come back that's wrong, but it'll be fine. I mean, it's a new house. It doesn't matter. They'll be like, this doorknob doesn't turn smoothly. It's real, real weird. Just be prepared for lots of paperwork. I win. (laughs) Eventually, after signing my name, I don't know, several hundred times. What's next in your lady life, Missy? So we are getting my daughter into swim lessons. Has she ever done it before? No, she's convinced she can swim. Oh, okay. So sure. this is a necessary thing that we have to do. Won't it be funny if you get her in swim lessons and she can swim? I will be amazed. And she just doesn't need the lessons. Yeah. She's fine. She was right all along. <laughs> Won't that be the worst? Her bathtub practicing really paid off. <laughs> she's convinced she can swim. That's great. I mean, I admire the She confidence. has lots of confidence. I know you hate that. 
I don't hate that my daughter has confidence. I just think it's misplaced sometimes. Such as in swimming, which she has never done. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and the one thing I just couldn't ration would be coffee. You know, I'm Allegra, and I'm just going to be honest with you, Missy. I could not accept a ration on beer. (laughs) I believe you. We'd love to hear from you, what you thought about today's episode, what you'd like us to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. To connect with us, you can find us on Twitter at ProfessHers, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, ProfessHers at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend or your lieutenant. And remember, fight like a girl or garden like one.